Good morning. Let me begin by, uh, to save questions later, I'll tell you why I'm wearing a mask today. Uh, Ann and Micah were exposed to COVID, and uh, then Micah wasn't feeling well. So the doctor said I should, uh, for safety, just for your safety, wear a mask for 10 days uh, whenever I'm within six feet of someone. She thought it'd be fine to uh, be up here and speak as you're further away. But uh, yeah, through Tuesday, we're wearing a mask just uh, to make sure we don't pass something along. <clears throat> so putting that behind me, I'm uh, planning to go to the book of 2 Kings again today. The purpose of 1 and 2 Kings, the, the books of 1 and 2 Kings record that the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, had 19 consecutive evil kings. 19 kings in a row who broke their covenant with God, who worshiped false gods, who led the people of Israel in wickedness. And if you look through kings, the writer lists one king after another, and each king's reign is summarized, and then there's a, a spiritual assessment made. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, chapters 4 through chapter 8, there's a break in that list of kings. And chapters 4 to 8, you have the writer puts in the way, the way that uh, what's well, Elisha's ministry and the miracles that God chose to work through Elisha. And these are not necessarily in chronological order with the rest of what's happening. Um, some of these were spread out through some of the other kings that are listed around it. So they're not in exact order, but you have this lump, chapters 4 through 8, where the writer gives uh, the way God worked through his prophet Elisha, his ministry. I think I've mentioned before in speaking about Elisha that God did more miracles through Elisha than any other person in Scripture outside of Jesus. What is a miracle? God's power supersedes the laws of nature that he established. That's a, a no-brainer. And when God chooses to overrule the laws of nature and do what to us is physically impossible, we call it a miracle. You know, in, I had to think of Luke chapter 1 and verse 37, where the angel is telling the Virgin Mary that she is going to be the mother of Jesus. And she says, how can this be? And it doesn't make sense. It's not possible. And the angel responds, for with God, nothing is impossible. When God works miraculously, I believe that he does so to reveal something about himself. It's never just for a show or to say, look what I can do. But there's a, there is a purpose, and it's to reveal something about God. Each miracle is like we could look at them as a little glimpse of God, what he is like. And so I like reading through the miracles listed here in 2 Kings 
looking for what does this tell me about God? Because these miracles happened, I believe, for a number of reasons. One, at the time that they happened, I believe God was showing the people, the nation of Israel, which was apostate, which was at, as a whole, they were serving Baal, a false god. They had turned their backs on God. I think God was showing them who he was and that he is the one who gives life. They were looking to Baal for life. They were looking to Baal for fertility, to provide children, to make fertile fields, to provide rain. They saw him, Baal as providing all this. And I believe these miracles happened to show them that it's really God who provides these things. I think it was also, these miracles happened for you and I. It's recorded here for you and I to look at and see what, did, what does this tell me about God? How does that affect how I live? This knowledge of God. How does that affect me today? Because it should. So what does this tell me about God? This morning, I want to look briefly at miracles God did for two women in 2 Kings chapter 4, reading 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all of your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you, you and your sons. Then pour into all these vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. <clears throat> Jewish historian Josephus says that this lady's, this widow's husband had been Obadiah. Scripture doesn't tell us that. It's a possibility, so I want to keep in mind that is not stated clearly in Scripture. However, it is a very interesting thing to think about. If you turn to back to 1 Kings 18, we read about Obadiah. Obadiah was actually the manager We'll call him the manager of, uh, he was over King Ahab's palace. So here's a man who feared God, who's in a wicked king's palace. Notice what it says about him. 1 Kings 18, I'm reading the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, Fifty to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. 
So here's a man who feared God, and when wicked Queen Jezebel, who brought in and set up Baal worship, was killing God's prophets, just one after another, and hunting them like animals, this man feared God. He had resources, and he put 100 men, 50 to a cave, and feeds them. He supplied for them. If that's who this widow's husband was, they were very likely impoverished by giving everything they had to keep 100 prophets alive while they were being hunted like animals by Queen Jezebel. This lady may have been a widow because Jezebel killed her husband. We don't know what caused her husband's death for sure. You know, Elisha's, I'm impressed with Elisha's response to her. Elisha's response to her need was not, oh, don't worry, with GoFundMe, you can, we can get you all the money you need. We'll just, we'll set this up. Money's going to pour in from everywhere. We'll have you covered. That's not what he said. He didn't say, go knock on your neighbor's door and ask them for money. And he didn't even say, something's going to fall from heaven in your yard. Here it is. No. He gave her specific instructions. He gave her something to do. A step of faith. Go and borrow vessels. Notice in verse 3, borrow vessels from everywhere, the New King James says, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels, don't gather just a few. What was it like for her to go to all of her neighbors and gather vessels? I'm sure people knew she was very poor. If her poverty was so extreme, she had nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Was it humiliating for her to go knock on everyone's door and ask for containers, empty containers? I don't know, very likely. I'm trying to imagine what it was like to be this lady and be knocking on doors, sending her sons to the neighbors, getting more and more containers No, I think her faith can be measured. If faith can be measured, her faith can be measured by how many containers she borrowed. She took God serious. If she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have borrowed many. And I ask myself, how many containers would I have borrowed had I been in the same situation? Three? Or five? Or would I have kept knocking? Kept looking for more containers, believing something's going to happen. God said he'll fill them. He continues with his instructions in verse 4. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Reminds me of Matthew 6.6, 6, where Jesus was speaking, and he said, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in, in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret 
will reward you openly. Do you think Jesus was thinking of this story? I don't know. Possibly. It's the same wording. Shutting the door and praying to your Father. Sometimes the only thing we can do is to close the door and pray to our Father in heaven. And I would like to suggest that it's also the best thing that any of us can do, the most effective thing that we can do, to pray to our Father in heaven in secret. Allow me to flip briefly to Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy. All of us need mercy. That we may obtain mercy and find help, and find grace to help in time of need. We're all in need of God's mercy and grace to help in time of need. I believe that's what this widow did as she closed the door on her and her sons. Can you imagine pouring from a small jar? I wanted to see. I couldn't find anything. They don't know. How much did this jar hold? Are we talking about a big jar, a little jar? The consensus is no one knows, but it was... They assume it was small. Imagine pouring from a small jar into these containers, whatever size you borrowed, and pouring and pouring, and it keeps... You can't fill a large container from a small one. But she did, one after another. God kept it going, just kept the oil coming, and she filled all of them. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need, according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. God supplies according to His riches. How much is that? We can't measure it. But God is able to supply. Why is it that God sometimes waits until I have exhausted all my resources, and then he provides for me. I don't know why, but I know that God is good and that what he does is for my good. Romans 8.28, you're familiar with that, says all things work together for good for those who love God. Maybe God waits so that it's very clear where my help is coming from. Maybe it's so that I will look to Him for all my needs, so that people looking on will see that it's God who supplies, that it's not what I can do for myself. I think it was clear to everyone looking on that God supplied this widow's needs. 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when in talking about Paul's thorn in the flesh, and he asked the Lord three times to remove it from him. The Lord told Paul, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, we like to be strong. None of us likes to be weak. But sometimes, God is best seen through our weakness. And maybe it's important for me and for people looking on to see God provide when it couldn't possibly be my strength doing it. The widow obeyed God. She took a step of faith and he provided for her. I love... Uh, and the way it's worded in verse 6, where she asked for another vessel, her son says there is not another vessel, so the oil ceased. As long as there was vessels there, the oil was flowing. The miracle that God did for her was recorded in Israel's history book, and here we are today, centuries later talking about what God did for her. You know, that, that miracle was done for her in private, but obviously it went, the news went everywhere. It was recorded in, in 2 Kings. <clears throat> the next lady, who is mentioned in, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 4, is in some ways, very different from this widow lady that we just looked at. I want to go ahead and read that. It's uh, verses 8 through 37. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, that he would turn in there and eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please, let us make a small upper room on the wall, and let us put a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand, so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. And it happened one day that he came there, and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, Look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Actually, she has no son, and her husband is old. So he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, About this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, My head, my head. So he said to a servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon. 
and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. Then she called her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now and meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, and Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, Did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready, take my staff in your hand, and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came in to him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. <clears throat> Quite an, an amazing story here. You know, in the... In the first three verses, 8 through 10, I believe opening her home to the man of God, to Elisha, showed faith. It showed her faith in God. You know, she was surrounded by a society that had largely rejected God. Here was a lady that took note and said, this, I believe this is a man of God. Let's make room for him in our home. She opened her home, first fed him, then provides add on to the, to the home and make a place for him to stay. The New King James Version calls her a notable woman. The adjective suggests nobility and wealth. She had enough resources that they could add on to her home, specifically for Elisha. So she added a room on top of the house. Uh, <clears throat> In talking about this, David Roper said the, the roof was the most cherished part of the home. It was where people gathered under a canopy 
where you had breeze and shade, it was relief from the heat. So it was the most cherished part. In other words, she gave her best to the man of God. Elisha wants to repay her kindness, and her response is interesting. She simply says, I dwell among my own people. Uh, commentators say this is an expression of content. I'm surrounded by family. I have what I need. Everything's okay. I'm content. Now, <clears throat> He still wants to do something for her, and he pursues this. Gehazi notices that she has no son, and her husband is old. And her response tells us, when, when he told her that by this time, the next year, she'll have a son, her response shows the depth of her desire for a son, I think. It's not a lack of faith, her response. Let me just read that in, in 16 when he said, you, this time next year you shall embrace the son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Don't set up my hopes for nothing. This is something I really desire, long for. And it's something she knew wasn't, hadn't happened, wasn't, Physically possible, she believed. And I love verse 17. But, but the woman conceived. God worked a miracle for her. She conceived, and she had, God worked through the normal process and the normal time of gestation, but God enabled her to, to conceive. And, you know, it's a reminder really to me that life is a gift from God. Every life is a gift. Every day is a gift. Every person, it's a reminder to me that every person is made in the image of God. Every person is valuable. Every person is valuable regardless of race, color, gender, social class, age. Every person has equal value. I want to remember that. And the people that I meet, as I'm out working, or whatever I'm doing, are people that, look at, let's look at those as people God brings into contact with us for a reason. And let's view those people, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, as valuable. Life is a gift from God. Verses 18 to 21 tell us that the child grew and went to the field with his father. I don't believe he was very old because it tells us that later that he sat on her knees until he died. And at the end of the story, she picks him up and carries him. So he's still a child, but the child grew and is big enough to go out in the field with his father. And apparently has sunstroke. Gets a terrible headache. And he dies. 
In fact, the passage tells us two times that he died. It's in verse 20 and in verse 32. It says again that he was laying on Elisha's bed dead. The woman, you know, her response, I think, is one of faith. She doesn't tell her husband, I can't imagine this, but she doesn't tell her husband what's wrong. She simply asks for a donkey and for a servant to make this trip. She doesn't tell Gehazi when she meets him, Elisha's servant. He asks if, every, if everything's good. She doesn't tell him what's wrong. God had promised her a son through Elisha, and she, in faith, is going back to the man of God who promised her she would have a son. You know, this is not a small trip. This is approximately 20 miles that she goes on the donkey, 20 miles each way. It's roughly like going from here to Culpeper on a donkey. It would take a while. My point is, the child was dead. This took, you don't make that trip fast. But she's serious about this. She's serious about getting to Elisha. So she's willing to go with the donkey and go 20 miles each direction. Jumping down to... Uh, Verse 27, I want to make note of one thing. When she comes to Elisha, Gehazi wants to push her away to protect Elisha. He doesn't think the way she's treating him is, is fitting. And Elisha says to leave her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. And the, the last part stands out to me. The Lord has hidden it from me. The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Sometimes, you know, Elisha recognized his dependency on God because sometimes God showed him what was going to happen ahead of time and he would prophesy about things that were going to happen. We'll see later how he, he tells it. Anyway, he, he knew who was going to be king of the country and he, he predicts this. God revealed it to him. But in this case, God didn't show him why she was distressed, what was going on. So he sends Gehazi, when he finds out it's her son, he sends Gehazi to lay his staff on the face of the child, and nothing happens. You know, we have other incidents in Scripture where God worked miracles through simply touching an object. For instance... Elijah's mantle. Elijah, remember Elijah took his mantle and he struck the water of the Jordan and the water parted and they walked through. The hem of Jesus' robe is another example. Touching robe and being healed. Paul's handkerchief was sent to, to the sick and to demon-possessed and the demons would leave. The sick were healed. Peter's shadow. People would lay their sick out in the street where his shadow would cross them. God doesn't always work in exactly the same way. Maybe it's to keep us from worshiping an object 
like Elisha's staff. Maybe it's to keep us from worshiping a person, Elisha. He was obviously dependent on God. He was looking to him for direction. So I can't memorize a formula and control God. He doesn't always work the same. But I can come to Him and ask Him to work on my behalf at any time, anywhere. I can come to God. You know, while, while Gehazi is going to lay Elisha's staff on the boy's face, the Shunammite woman insists that she will not leave Elisha. You're stuck with me. I'm not leaving. She's, she's looking to him, not Gehazi. You know, Gehazi comes and I, I didn't mention that when she was on the way to Elisha, he sent Gehazi. Gehazi asked her what's wrong, and she just blows by him and says, it's well. Well, she didn't want, she didn't trust Gehazi. We see later in 2 Kings that there was a good reason she didn't trust him. But while Gehazi is going to put the staff on her, the woman says she's not leaving. So we're told Elisha gets up and goes with her. Now they've got that 20-mile 20, 20 journey back to her home and to where her son is lying on the prophet's bed, dead. Verse 33, when he gets there, he, Elisha, went in therefore and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard a verse like that before? In the widow's story just before this, he had them shut the door. They were alone with God. Jesus spoke of shutting the door and praying your Father in heaven. Maybe the most valuable thing I can learn is to shut the door and pray to my Father in heaven. Now in verses 33 to 35, these are not the first recorded instance of CPR. The description of Elisha's actions in the room, stretching himself out on the child, pacing up and down the room, coming back. And, there is nothing magical in what Elisha did. And this was not CPR. The child was dead. I think rather these are the actions of a man who's fervently praying. Who's distressed? Imagine how Elisha felt after promising her a son and then seeing that gift taken. I wonder what was going through his mind. I don't know. But I can imagine Elisha, were I in his shoes, I'd be saying, Lord, what will this do to your reputation? You gave this woman a child. The people around her believed Baal gives children. And you gave her a child. Everyone was wild by what you did. 
and now you take it away? You're going to let him die young? What does this do to you? What about the people who are waffling and looking at Baal and thinking Baal worship looks pretty good? It must have been quite a test for Elisha's faith. You know, the sun was not instantly raised to life. It wouldn't have been nice if it would have just happened like that and he'd have popped up and everything. That's not how this happened. You notice in the passage that in verse 34, the body begins to warm. That tells you two things. One, the body was cold. Two, circulation started. The body's warming. There's blood circulation. But that's it. Verse 35, Elisha gets up and he leaves the body and paces up and down the room and comes back, lays on him again. Then the child sneezes seven times. That tells us respiration started. He's breathing. He's sneezing. And finally, in the third step, the child opens his eyes. There's consciousness. So it didn't all happen instantaneously. But God gave life to this little boy who had been dead. And only God can do that. Verse 37 says, So she went in and fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. This Shunammite woman became one of the women of faith described in Hebrews 11 and verse 35. Women who received their dead raised to life again. I want to pause and notice a few things about these women. I'd like to compare I know the Bible says they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. In this case, I'd like to compare them just a bit to notice why it's not a good idea for us to compare with others. Here you have the widow who was poor. She was in need. You have the Shunammite woman who's wealthy. She has an abundance. She can add to her house if she wants. The widow has nothing in her house. Shunammite woman says, let's add on. The widow has a small container of oil. The Shunammite woman says, come and eat with us. The widow is about to lose two sons to slavery. The Shunammite woman doesn't have a son. The widow may be poor because of giving to God's prophets. And the Shunammite woman is giving to God's prophets. The widow had sons given back from certain slavery. She expected to lose them to slavery. Shunammite woman has a son given back from death. Two women living very different lives, both demonstrated faith in God, and God provided miraculously for each of them. The widow, Elisha gave instructions for her to act on. He required her to do something. 
The Shunammite woman, Elisha acted on her behalf. Both required faith. Again, I say God doesn't always act in the same way. But God is good, and he knows what's best. I turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, to think of this in connection with these two ladies and their different circumstances. Paul said, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to live humbly, and I know how to live in prosperity. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned to be full and to be hungry, to both abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No matter what my circumstances, I need the power of Christ working in me and through me so I can honor Him with my life. So what do these miracles tell us about God? We could list a lot of things. I'm only going to mention three this morning that stand out to me. Maybe you have more. These miracles tell me, number one, God cares about each individual's situation. God cares. God is available. And third, God is able. God cares, God is available, and God is able. Faith moves toward God, and God moves toward faith. Let me repeat that. Faith moves toward God, and God moves toward faith. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that we can come to you. Thank you that you know us. You care. Thank you that you're available to us. And finally, thank you that you are able to handle whatever we face. Thank you for the the promise that when we draw nigh to you, you will draw nigh to us. Lord, may we do that today and this week. As we go about our week, I pray that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit working in our hearts and that we would move in the power of your Spirit. That you would make a difference in this community through each of your people gathered here today. May we move towards you, look to you this week. Lord, thank you for the food that's prepared downstairs. We're grateful for the way that you've provided so much more than we need. Lord, would you bless the food? Would you bless those who have worked hard to prepare it for us? Would you give us strength from it? Bless our fellowship there together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.